and brings us to God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. I'm sorry I don't have the page number. If somebody wants to shout that out, whoever gets there first, 817. And I'm going to ask my wife to bring up my Bible. Now, when I chose, um, let's, let's, um, thank you. So, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to start in the verse, the last verse in chapter 3 for our reading. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out to the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened that when the sun rose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, But God, the Lord said, You have had pity. Uh, and, and I'm sorry. And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry even unto death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity, pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. Oh, great God and heavenly Father, we come to your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Please let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, when I chose to, um, was asked to do a sermon, I, I chose this passage um, because of things I've seen on the internet. I look at the, the things that are going on in our society right now, and there are professing Christians that are making statements, um, sadly so. Um, and um, so I thought, and even I at times feel temptations. I think we all do when we see the things going around in the world around us. So I really zeroed into this passage. So I hope it'll be some uh, profit to you uh, this day. So the book of Jonah is a very popular book. It uh, provides a story that is very clear and simple. 
Uh, it's simple enough that a child could grasp it. That's why it's so popular in Sunday school curriculums and vacation Bible studies, Bible schools. Because of this, we may ask ourselves, why bother studying this book from a much older ancient time? After all, it was written about 800 years ago before Christ. Uh, those outside the church, non-Christians, erroneously regard this story as a fairy tale. What can we learn about a story about a fish swallowing a man? And what relevance does this have uh, to us today? Like I've heard a uh, renowned pastor on the radio say at one time, he said, the best time to learn something is when we think we already know all about it. Now, Jonah is a very short book. It's been one of the minor prophets, and when I say minor prophets, I don't mean less important. It's just in terms of the number of words or pages. It's a, um, in, spite of, in spite of its shortness, it only contains 48 verses, by the way. There are riches contained in this book that we could probably study and discuss and meditate on, probably for a lifetime. Much more than we can deal with on one Sunday morning sermon. Now, you've heard it said, uh, uh, Chuck DeYoung has reminded us in Sunday school not too recently that you've probably heard the New Testament is hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is revealed in, in the New. Because of this, we should always read the Old Testament with uh, Christ-eccentric spectacles. We should always look at the Old Testament and see Christ in it. We certainly see this in Jonah as we examine the story more in depth, what we'll be getting into today. We do see the mercy and grace of God that eventually becomes ultimately manifested in the coming of the greater prophet, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us will see our faces in the prophet Jonah as well. Now, since I'm starting in the fourth chapter, I'd like to give a little backdrop, a little synopsis of everything that's gone before. The first chapter of the book, you guess you could refer to that as the call, the flight, and the judgment of Jonah. Jonah has received a commission from God. And what is that? To cry out and preach to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a very wicked city. He was to warn them, for God has seen their wickedness and is about to pass judgment on them. How did Jonah feel about this? Well, this is repugnant to him. Why is that? Well, it was the capital city of Assyria, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was outside the covenant community. This was not part of Israel. In addition, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. So it's really hard to imagine during this time that any Israelites would have a neutral uh, reaction of emotion when confronted with the name of Assyria. Briefly in the Old Testament, we see God working in two other instances where he brings his mercy and grace to nations outside of Israel. But this story, the city of Nineveh, will eventually be a great symbol of God's mercy to the Gentiles. So what does Jonah do in his response to God's command? He's told to go to Nineveh, but what does he do? He boards a ship and he's going, it's going to a town called Tarshish, Tarsus. Now, the location of the city is disputed, but most do agree it's probably in the exactly opposite direction of Nineveh. God commanded Jonah to go eastward, and what does he do? He tucks tail and runs westward. This starts the downfall of our prophet. A great storm comes about on the ship he's on. 
The sailors aboard the sailing ship are frantic. Now, if you know anything about sailors, when they're frantic about a storm, it's a storm. You know, they're used to this stuff, okay? But they're frantic. And the sailors' behaviors are a deep contrast to Jonah. What's Jonah doing? He's down below deck. He's sleeping. Now, the, the sailors, their behaviors are in deep contrast to Jonah's. They're stressing an appeal to Jonah's God, but Jonah is ambivalent. In addition, his disobedience has dangerously involved others in his escapism. Jonah had decided he was expendable. If he removed himself from action, Nineveh would not be warned of their coming judgment from God. He was willing to perish that Israel would be preserved and Nineveh destroyed. However, despite this, we see God already using Jonah when the sailors begin calling on the name of Yahweh instead of their false gods after they learn who Jonah was and who he worships. Their faith and their eventual worship of God really intensified as well after they throw Jonah into the sea. If you remember the story, they throw Jonah into the sea and the storm ceased its raging. And we were told that they feared the Lord exceedingly. What happens next? God sends a great fish to swallow and actually save Jonah. Well, on the brink of death, Jonah experienced a profound encounter with the living God. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days, three nights, and he's praying to the Lord. Chapter 2, that's basically what chapter 2 is. Jonah's pray. He's alone with his God. During this time, however, Jonah expresses his his gratitude, his thankfulness, gives praises to the Lord for preserving his life. So what does the Lord do? He spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited, vomit, vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then we see in chapter 3, the whole plot of the book rewinds and starts again. All right? This time Jonah obeys God. He goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh, what do they do? They repent. At this point, we may tend to think that Jonah has finally learned his lesson. His lesson from God that God was trying to teach him. But like ourselves, Jonah has many more depths to plumb before he grasps the knowledge of God in his ways in the world. So I divided the sermon, you'll see in the, in the handout in your bulletin, three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jonah's anger and accusation towards God. God's lesson for Jonah, verses 4, 6 through 9. And God's final word to Jonah, Jonah 4, 10 through 11. Now as we look at the first five verses, actually a little beyond that in verse 9, God asks Jonah three questions in all of chapter 4. Three questions. Do you have any right to be angry is in verse 4. We will see that question again in verse 9. Yes, Jonah is angry. Now, Anger is one letter away from danger, they say. You may see that in a marquee board in rural America down in the south, driving by. Anger is one letter away from danger. And how true that is. After giving behavior that has showed signs of repentance, Jonah is in danger of allowing his anger to be focused not only on Nineveh, but also on the Lord himself. Now you would think, you would think after seeing the repentance and the turning away from their sin, their evil ways in Nineveh, he'd be rejoicing, wouldn't you? Instead, what do we do? We find him sulking. This is a strange, strange reaction for a pastor. 
from what should be viewed as a great encouragement, having had the privilege to be used by God, he sulks. He's actually got the calamity present in him that really Nineveh was spared of. And one thing, notice that his attitude is coming from an obedient servant after chapter 3. In chapter 3, he's not been disobedient this time, the second time around. He's gone where God's told him to go. He said what God wanted him to say, but he's still not in harmony with God's gracious plan. And this can be a warning to all of us, can it not? That we can go through all the proper motions for which is fitting and proper for a Christian, but we can still find our hearts far from his redemptive plan. Now God commands us to be holy as he is holy. As pastor and theologian Stan Gale wrote in January in the Aquila Report, he had an article, he says, the key to holiness is more than just behaving yourself. It's knowing if you are a Christian, you've been called out of darkness. God has called you specifically. He's called you from the very beginning of time. If you love Christ, that's not an accident. That is not your doing. That is God. If you know that you've been set apart by God and we dead dwell on that reality, the rest will follow as the tail follows the dog. Now, two things displeased Jonah. Not only was it the Ninevites turning from their violent and wicked ways, but also God, what, relenting from the action he stated he was going to perform. Jonah was not a little displeased. It displeased him. It displeased him greatly. As one commentator puts it, a literal translation from the Hebrew reads, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned within him. So much that he says he'd rather die. Here's Jonah in the passage thinking he knows all, he, he knows best, he knows all the answers. And we see in verse 2 that he's even trying to explain his sin. He's trying to make excuses or justify his previous sin. How much do we do that when we bring our confession before the Lord? Do we find ourselves making excuses why we did the evil that we did? In addition, if we read verses 2 and 3, there's a lot of self-centeredness here. If we read it, I call it four eyes and two me's. Let's look at this together. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah knew that God's character, Jonah knew God's wrath. To those who have any disregard to him, who are persistent in their sin, they don't want anything to do with God. God has real wrath. But he also knew of God's loving kindness and his tender mercies. And he really doesn't want any of this to be done with the Ninevites. He doesn't want any of that love and mercy stuff for this, these, these people. How does Jonah know the character of God? If you would turn to me, uh, turn with me, I'm sorry, to Exodus 32, 7, 14. 
Exodus 32, 7 through 14. And if you remember, this, uh, the setting of this is when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's been up there 40 days and 40 nights, and he's gotten the Ten Commandments. And the Lord says to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them, and they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed is a stiff-necked people. Now for, now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from the harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So what? So the Lord relented from harm, which he said he would do to his people. And if you want to flip to another section, Genesis 34, 5, 7. This is the second time around where Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Exodus 3, 4, 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity to the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here's a people. God has called to himself the Israelites. He called them to himself as his own special people. He showed them and spared them from his great ten signs and wonders, the plagues of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and parted the Red Sea for them. They saw these great things the Lord has done. He fed them in the desert, and he provided water. And there are many other things that we can see in Scripture that God did for these people. Now, if God would show mercy and kindness to a people who should know better, who've had these revelations from God, who have gotten this special treatment from God, how much more would God offer forgiveness, the potential to offer forgiveness, loving kindness to those in Nineveh who are living in ignorance? and in bondage to their sin. Jonah knew this, and he didn't like that. So after Jonah tried to run away from God, God did not cast him off. He's even provided an opportunity, as we read, for Jonah for self-reflection in verse 4. God does not say, well, Jonah, since you, you, you uh, turned your back on me, why didn't I send a lion to come and eat you? 
Now, if God should do that for anything that we've done like that, I know I wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be a lot of us left in this room. I know I wouldn't be here standing in front of you. So the Lord rescued the prophet from drowning, showing his graciousness and loving kindness. Again, so often is the case he deals with us, is it not? So Jonah has forgotten God's mercy towards him. Now he's well equipped to appreciate God's mercy when he observes it exercised on someone else's behalf. God's compassion is okay for himself, but not those Ninevites. It's okay to forgive his disobedience, but not Nineveh's. So what Jonah is really struggling with right now is what each Christian generation, I think, tends to struggle with, the question that is eventually um, that each individual comes around to ponder. And what is that? That's the sovereignty of God's divine grace. Now, you may be here this morning and say, well, Ken, you know, that that sounds a little too theological for me, too doctrinal. You know, you may not think that's a very practical thing for us as Christians in our daily walk. It doesn't sound like ten steps to be a better Christian. It's not seven ways to bring up godly children. It's not three steps to become an effective Christian witness. However, this doctrine is a very practical issue for all of us. You see, it's God's issue in dealing with all humanity. Is an issue of his, what? Grace. This is something that all of us really need to get into our bloodstream. Now, it is this perplexity, this doctrine that Jonah is really giving voice. God, why would you be merciful to those people? Them. They're your enemies, God. They're bad people. He's like he's saying when he's saying, telling God, when I was ready to go in and pronounce judgment on them, I was pumped. It was like, let it fall. Let it rain down hard and fast. Why would you be gracious to them, Lord? They're not monotheistic like us. They don't pay attention to the law of Moses like us. They don't bring up their children in the fear and admonition of you, O Lord. Now, if we, like Jonah, ever get that way, we have forgotten who we are and the grace that we have been forgiven. Again, it's the issue of the sovereignty of God's grace. The doctrine of sovereign grace is the melding of two great attributes of God into one thrilling truth that gives us a glimpse into the mind and heart of our great God. Now, the sovereignty of God, what is that? That's the total control of all things. All things past, present, future. Nothing happens beyond his knowledge and his control, all things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes in accordance with his perfect will and timing. As R.C. Sproul once said, there are no maverick molecules, nothing. God is in control of all. Combine that with the grace of God, which is what? His unmerited favor towards those who have not earned it. It is undeserved favor. We see this in Ephesians 2, Verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, if we think that we're, we're coming to, we come to faith because it's our doing, that's a work. 
we have, there's a little life in us, there's that little bit of righteousness in it, a work that we do that brings us to God. No, it's God's grace. He is sovereign in his grace. He gives grace unto, we read this also in Romans 9, if you want to turn there. Romans 9, 13 through 16. This is re, uh, referring to the Old Testament, but Paul, Paul brings it up in Romans. He says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And then Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with, with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. One Scottish theologian stated that divine grace towards sinners cannot be understood. It doesn't have a reason. It simply reflects the way God is. God's gift of mercy to sinners has no answer. It's amazing grace, is it not? And we sing that hymn. Now, Jonah has been the recipient of God's loving kindness. But Jonah still finds fault with those he thinks are beyond the circle of redemption. He has set up categories in his mind. Uh, those who are worthy of salvation and those are not. I've heard that in Christians before, unfortunately. Nobody here, but... There are basically two types of people, those who are do-gooders and those who are not, those who are law followers and those who are not. That's a sad thing to hear, for we know in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jonah is angry with God and ready to die in verse 3. So then God says, okay, let me ask you a question. Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah, what does he do? He goes outside the city, and he sets up shelter on the east side to see what would become of Nineveh, where they, they would persevere in their repentance. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Then we get into the next section, God's lesson for Jonah, verses 6 through 9. In this passage, the Lord is set on giving Jonah some instruction. Jonah still has not come around in God's, to God's way of thinking, but God has not given up on him. In many places in the Bible, we see that question answering, of, a question asking, I'm sorry, of God is a matter of divine uh, teaching or instruction. We've seen earlier that God has already asked Jonah a question, verse 4, and there's two more to come. We see God also doing the same thing in two sections found in Scripture, that some that may be familiar with you. If you I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if you remember in, in Genesis 3, 9, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 9 through 13, after the fall of Adam and Eve, they're walking in the garden after they, they have fallen, after they have sinned against the Lord who made them. God cries out, where are you? Question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What is this? that you have done, like God had no awareness. God knew what would happen, but he's, that's the way he's confronting Adam and Eve. We see this in the book of Job. God checks the servant's attitude by means of what? A question. 
He approaches Job and he says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. That's from Job 38 verses 2 and 3. So God is working in other ways too in verse 6. Jonah first had sought shelter as he watches the city of Nineveh. Now, the looking for shelter makes sense in this area because Nineveh was in the far, one of the far or the near eastern cities. It was very arid there. It was very hot. And what does God do for Jonah? He appoints a vine to grow up in the night along Jonah's area to shelter and provide a shade. It was to deliver him and, to, you could say, to save him. As God had provided the fish earlier, he now appoints the plant. We see another irony when Jonah, what does he do? He rejoices with great joy over his own deliverance of having, having a relief from the heat. Yet, he's still expressing grief over the deliverance of the Ninevites. God continues to use this nature parable, as you could say, in verse 7. As dawn, uh, dawn, uh, at dawn, God appoints a worm to gnaw away at Jonah's shade. And what happens? The plant is killed and it withers away. And then what does God do? He turns up the heat. He sends a uh, hot wind, a uh, hot east wind as the sun rose. We're told that the prophet grew faint as the sun beat on his, on his head. And again, we see Jonah. He wishes death over life. And then a second question God asked of Jonah in verse 9 And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now the question has to do with the righteousness of God's anger. Before it was the anger over the deliverance of Nineveh, now Jonah's angry over the destruction of the plant. Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry even to death. So that gets us into the last section, the last two verses. So, as we've read so far, Jonah has brought the Almighty God before the bar of judgment, and he has pronounced him guilty. Now, God, God's had enough. God is now going to debate with Jonah was what is called, and forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that right if somebody knows it, call the Valhomer, call Valhomer argumentation. What is that? That is argumentation from the lesser to the greater. If this, how much more that, or how much more. This type of argument is often used in scripture. We, Jesus used it in Matthew 7 through 13. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the Apostle Paul used this type, type uh, argumentation also frequently in his epistles. So God speaks in these last two verses Jonah received the plant as a gift. He did not work for it. He did not tend it. He did not um, care for it in any way. Yet he's tremendously grieved about losing this, losing the plant. This is even made more explicit when uh, God reminds him that the plant came and went in, what, one day. God tells Jonah that he did not create the plant. He did not take care of the plant. He did not nurture the plant. But God did this for Nineveh. The plant appeared overnight, but Nineveh grew over many months and many years. It had very much, a lot of people in it. How much more do they deserve care, concern, 
and pity. Nineveh has many people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyles and don't know how to get out, as we're told in the final verse, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, as God says. Jonah cared about the plant. Shouldn't God care about the city of Nineveh? These people are helpless in their ability to make serious ethical discriminations. Now, surely, they're, they're not morally innocent by any means, but they are helpless in the sense that they are trapped in their sins and undiscerning of how to escape them. What an unseemly thing this is when we see the creature rise up against the creator in a boisterous spirit, contending with him. You could say that our prophet was in a monstrous state of mind. Jonah had set himself as judge, not seeing himself in a humble stance as a sinful human creature. Now, the interpreters of Jonah have various opinions what Jonah is really, what God's lesson to Jonah really is, but it's basically, rather than what Jonah is really like, the message is, what is God really like? Now, did Jonah eventually take heart? The lessons learned from his counseling session with God? Uh, the text doesn't say. The annals of history are silent. The scriptures are silent. All we're really left with is the contrast between Jonah's resentful attitude and God's great mercy to the Ninevites. So what can we now, what can we learn from this portion of God's word? I think you would all agree we have great God. His attributes, which include mercy and grace to the most wretched of sinners, should astound us. We mentioned that earlier. Even the Apostle Paul contemplating on the wonders of the Lord expressed in his doxology, a lot of you are familiar with in Romans 11, verse 33, where Paul goes off on a doxology saying, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. Yes, God's covenant of grace. It expands both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The same message from God preached by Jonah to the Ninevites continues to go out to a fallen world today. A message that what? Offers peace with the living God. This is the gospel. And as I remind when I do Bible study at the nursing home, I ask them almost every week. Sometimes they remember, sometimes they don't. But what is gospel? It's good news. I had one gentleman, he's passed away now. I remember David Toomey. I remember him. God rest his soul. And he was there. Good news every week. You know, and uh, so it is good news. What is the good news? It's God offering peace with him, the forgiveness of sin. The gospel is ultimately fulfilled in what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greater prophet, he was also not only prophet, but priest and king. Jesus, in describing himself, actually referred to Jonah on three occasions. If you go to the New Testament, Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11. By putting our faith and trust in Christ, the faith, if real, will lead to repentance. We have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Christ took our sin and bore our punishment on the cross. And in turn, what? Gives us his righteousness, a foreign righteousness, the only righteousness accepted before a holy God. Now, I would ask you, if there is anyone here today and don't know Christ, you don't know Christ, or you've drifted, seeing yourself apart from him, I implore you not to neglect so great a salvation. Come to Christ and live. 
We've seen the mercy and grace he gave to Nineveh. Now, if Nineveh should repent at the preaching of Jonah, how much more should we heed the message brought forth by God's own son? Now, for us who claim Christ, we've seen from Jonah that we have no right to challenge God's will and the way he extends his mercy. Only those who have been grasped by grace, grasped by grace, can rejoice when others are saved. Let me challenge you all with a question that intermittently I even need to ask myself, not even, I need to ask myself. Have you been grasped by God's grace? Think about that. Have we moved from the time when we thought the Bible was a closed and dead book, and there came a time where they opened up and came alive to us? Was there a time when Sunday morning worship was optional? It kind of seemed like a bad idea. You had the more important things to do. Or was it still unimportant to you and you just kind of endured it? Then there was a time when the singing of praise to God, to hearing his word preached, stirred your heart, stirred your heart and moved you. Have you moved to the point of seeing the issue of a dying Christ a most pressing matter to you because you saw yourself dead in your trespasses and sin and found that out by only placing your faith and hope in Christ can you find forgiveness and peace with God? Have you experienced this joy while seeing the Holy Spirit working in your life, knowing that a great God has saved you, a great sinner? If these things, then you have been grasped by God's grace. Understanding God's grace is the key to avoiding a spirit of what? Phariseeism. A spirit of Phariseeism can cling to our hearts. The reason the Pharisees were so angry with Jesus in his earthly ministry is that he saw their hearts and this attitude in them. They were the religious leaders of the day. And we see this attitude also with Jonah in this passage, what we're reading today. Now, we live in a day where there's so much unrest, political unrest, racial, societal division, along with an ever-increasing persecution of the church. We in the church may find our hearts not having an empathy and compassion for those who are in who are unlovely. Now, when I say unlovely, I'm not talking about physical appearance at all. I'm talking about the unloveliness where there's no semblance of Christ, the beauty of Christ about them. You know who I'm talking about. Those adults, those teens and kids that seem spoiled, sexually perverted, or those who are broken, addicted to hard drugs, or they wear demonic attire, or those who know themselves to be wretched, spending time in the red light districts, frequenting strip joints. Instead of compassion being there, there's a spirit of resentment, and we find ourselves saying, look at those people. Look at those people over there. You know what? They deserve what they get. Look at them. Going there, doing that, thinking that. Look what they think about a fetus. This is not the response of someone grasped by grace because the individual grasped by grace says to herself that that was me. Without the Lord Jesus, that is me. If you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, we're definitely in an unsettling time. The worldview most common today seems to us is illogical, certainly immoral, distorted, self-centered, corrupt, the list goes on. How can they think the things that they do? How can they think the things they do? Because they're pagan. They're without Christ, without any hope in this world. Now, it's easy for us to pity the poor, pity the downhearted, who really, by worldly standards, don't measure up. But how about those who are not? Do we think that these people, which include our most egotistical and corrupt politicians, entertainers, Hollywood celebrities, all who badmouth Christians, are they beyond God's circle of redemption? Should we shout back at them, maliciously argue with them? Will we be like Jonah complaining to the Lord because of the type of people he's letting into the kingdom? Do we find ourselves saying to the Lord, well, it's okay to let us in, but, but not them? In Luke 5, 27 through 31, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But Jesus had called, this is after Jesus had called Matthew, the tax collector. And if you know, tax collectors were regarded as the worst sinners around. And the Pharisees had nothing to do with them, lest they be contaminated or defiled or whatever, hanging out with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And what does Jesus say? He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And just as a side note, I thought of it this morning as I was preparing for this sermon, but Franklin Graham, he was praying for Putin, Vladimir Putin, the other day. And he was roasted. He a lot of complaints. Hopefully they're not Christians who complained about that. But I read that, that how can you pray for him? But he needs a prayer. He, he acts the way he does because he's pagan. He's fallen in sin. He needs the Lord Jesus, just like we all do. In Luke 19, remember the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a short man. He was a tax collector, very sinful, and he's up in a tree waiting to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls him down. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. This evening I'll dine with you. And the Pharisees couldn't understand it. It made no sense. So even those who are the most gross and pronounced, they have the most gross and pronounced of sin are actually the objects of God's concern and pity. That includes Nineveh, and yes, believe it or not, Jonah as well. And so the church has a great mission set before us. The proclaiming of the gospel with the most, is the most imperative of duties. That what the most important thing is God's truth go forth. So let us, as God's people, his church, get out into the world 
into the highways and byways, loving the unlovely as Christ does, telling of his grace, again, making the invisible God visible. Let's pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, wonderful, wonderful God you are. When we don't deserve forgiveness, your mercy and grace, you have given it to us. You are glorious, O oh Lord, and we praise you for that. You will hear our praise for eternity, not only us, but all your people through all ages. We thank you for your word, which encourages us in this way. Thank you for the lesson learned from the prophet Jonah. And we pray that you would use this to prepare our hearts as we go forth serving Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.